Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. For this episode, we spoke with Emily Webster, a PhD candidate in history and MSc student in public health science at the University of Chicago. She is currently finishing her dissertation project entitled Diseased Landscapes, Land Use Change, and Interspecies Epidemics in the British Empire, 1837 to 1914, which is funded by the Social Science Research Council and the National Science Foundation. Her work engages health studies, epidemiology, environmental history, and imperial urban history. Outside of her research, Emily serves as a review editor and series editor for Environmental History Now, a platform dedicated to showcasing the work of early career female-identifying environmental scholars and coordinates the University of Chicago Environmental Studies Workshop. Emily, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So can you tell us um, how you became interested in the intersections between disease and climate and empire? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's probably easier to get at through like why I became interested in history, uh, because I actually started as college as an ecology and evolutionary biology major um, combined with history. And I was always kind of interested in environmental questions of disease, but I found that I was always kind of asking the wrong questions for scientists. I was more interested in these kind of larger social patterns, um, individual experience, different kinds of uh, social and economic and political implications and causes of disease um, or risk factors for disease. And so uh, I kind of moved into history because I felt like there was conceptual space to work on topics like uh, disease in a more broad and comparative sense and with more uh, salient analytic lenses for the kinds of questions that I was interested in. So I started uh, grad school actually as a British imperial historian just because my undergraduate advisor, Chris Otter, was a British imperial historian. Um, and he was also an environmental historian. And so he kind of exposed me to the world of thinking through disease, environment, and history together. And then it was in my second year that I finally started to work on my own project related to that. And I uh, found some documents at the British Library because I'd gone over the summer to look for uh, our seminar paper uh, for, for kind of primary source material that was inspirational. And I found a series of documents by this doctor in Melbourne named William Thompson, who wrote on tuberculosis. And he was uh, kind of writing in opposition to miasma theory and positing germ theory. But in the process of doing that, he was laying out this kind of grand mystery of why it was that tuberculosis mortality was so high in Melbourne. And I thought it was really interesting because by all the kind of standard risk factors that historians talk about for tuberculosis, 
and even a lot of public health scientists, Melbourne really shouldn't have had a high tuberculosis mortality rate. It wasn't an overly dense city. It wasn't an overly poor city. So I started to kind of pursue that question from an environmental lens, um, using kind of questions about land use change. Uh, climate obviously plays into it because there's whole kind of climatological theories of disease. And then that kind of snowballed into a broader comparative study about disease in uh, Australia, India, and the United Kingdom, uh, because it seemed like comparison was the best way to get at this question of difference. Interesting. So you were you were interested in the medical side of things first, and then got into the history. That's cool. And, and was that based on like a childhood interest in disease or <laughs> or medicine? I guess. I guess so. I mean, I remember being a, a small kid, you know, reading, you know, eleven, twelve years old, reading Survival of the Sickest. Uh, and thinking that that was a really interesting book. Um, and then throughout my entire life, I just kind of paralleled an interest in biology and, and humanities and history in particular. Uh, I think history captivated me because of its storytelling capacity, biology, because it was so fascinating to kind of learn how the world around us worked. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure what the like origin point was for thinking through disease, but I think... Um, as, as I've been studying more and more, I've almost become more fascinated in it because I've started to think of disease as a kind of, especially microbial illness and viral illnesses, as these moments where the body and environment duality break invasion of the environment into the body. And so it seems really interesting to think through these kinds of moments, especially a moment like now with microbiome research and all of these other innovations telling us that humans aren't as kind of aren't closed systems and that we're not separate from our environments. Um, it's interesting to use disease to kind of think with that lens and re-examine history with an understanding that we're not kind of closed systems. Armed with that kind of concept, I guess, and, and with that kind of knowledge, um, what do you think historians like you can contribute to public understandings of the current moment? That's a big question, I know. <laughs> I was kind of prepared to think through this one because I'm currently working on a project uh, with Caitlin DeClerc and Mohamed Daripur um, about um, epidemic urbanism. So thinking through epidemic disease in the time of COVID-19. And it's difficult because I think there are often debates within the discipline of history about whether it's our place to say anything about modern epidemic. Um, I'm on the side of, you know, all tools are useful when thinking through massive change in environment in human. So to me, I think what's most important about history is the, uh, the analytic lenses we use and their ability for kind of multi-scalar thought um, so that we can look not only at a particular event uh, at a local scale, but that we can then connect that local scale to broader trends in economic, politics, global governance. All of these things are, uh, are things that are not necessarily, science isn't necessarily equipped to answer questions that jump between scales because of the way that study design works. And so, I think history can be useful for creating a more holistic picture of 
what's happening at a given time and teaching people to think through multiple layers of causality and multiple layers of events. Um, and then I think it's also useful in showing us which elements of social, economic, political, technological development we should train our focus on when we're thinking about combating illness. So whether we're thinking about kind of local public health authority and how it functions, um, so something like does having a fragmented public health authority at the local level between districts increase or decrease the risk of disease? Um, does it increase coordination, decrease coordination, allow for more specialization? Um, do things get lost in translation? And then also thinking through the kind of global scale. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably get into a bit more with COVID, but it can be very hard to connect, you know, the local epidemic that you're seeing in your district or your neighborhood with large-scale land use pattern changes occurring in China right now as a result of global commercial patterns, right? And that's not something that would show up in a public health report necessarily, but it is something that we are equipped as historians to think about. And I think that's useful. Have you seen a lot of that thinking in the public discourse, in news media in particular, or do you think that's still lacking? And if you feel like it's lacking, um, how do you think historians can, you know, kind of shape the public discourse more effectively? I think we're seeing more of it than I expected, uh, which was exciting. Um, there are a lot more articles coming out of relatively mainstream newspapers uh, and news sites that are talking about these kind of connections and, you know, commodity chains and consumer patterns and, uh, and urban expansion and disease. Um, and so that's exciting, but I think that it's not necessarily translating to the material that most of the public digests necessarily either. So it's, it exists if you're looking for it, but I don't think it's on the forefront of what we're, of how we're kind of dealing with the epidemic. And I think that one of the ways that historians could contribute to elevating that kind of perspective in the way that we think through COVID, and especially um, we think through emerging infectious diseases, because we know that this is just one of what's going to be a kind of accelerating number of uh, zoonotic infectious diseases jumping out of animals and into people in the next, you know, 50 to 100 years. Um, would be collaboration uh, with scientists and particularly disease ecologists to help form the narratives that are kind of getting disseminated to the public. I think historians have a tendency to think of themselves as kind of solitary scholars. And when it comes to something like an epidemic or any sort of large scale public emergency, you need an entire team of people with different perspectives to kind of deal with the different aspects of of the of the emergency and i think that if we were more open to kind of cross-disciplinary collaborations um, being part of a larger project and a larger narrative about how these things change then the historical way of thinking could start to kind of permeate public space a little bit more but we'd have to kind of get outside the echo chamber talking to other historians thinking that our work needs to be solitary um, in order to do that we've been chatting with other colleagues about how to 
put this these kinds of multidisciplinary projects into practice, how do you think that goal can be realized and multidisciplinary collaborations like this can become the norm among historians rather than the exception? Yeah, that one's complicated. So I think part of it has to do with the structure of tenure within the academy, uh, which is not something I'm incredibly equipped to speak about having not had any experience uh, at you know the professorial level. But it seems to me that the kind of baseline uh, tenure process in which you're measured based on only your publications and not co-authored publications um, is particularly detrimental to multidisciplinary work. Um, and so a lot of historians who do multidisciplinary work kind of do it at the expense of their individual work, or they do it because they are ahead of schedule on their individual work, or because they want to prioritize something um, different than, than their own work. And so I think that we kind of have to restructure what it means to be a historian from the level of the department down in order to see more multidisciplinary work, to kind of recognize these collaborative pieces in the same way that, not to say that history should become the sciences, but in the same way that sciences or even social scientists have multi, multi-author papers that are accepted towards tenure. Um, and that the, you know, the first author papers are the ones that are the most important, but obviously there are lots and lots of other ones that also matter. Mm. So I've, I've been dealing with some of these issues um, too, maybe, uh, you know, as a graduate student, certainly, um, but also as um, as faculty. And I think it's a bigger issue when you're a graduate student uh, than when you're a faculty. Well, than when you're ten- tenured faculty anyway, exactly as you put it, right? Um, because, um, of course, it's true that a lot of departments still don't recognize this as being uh, equally valid to more traditional publishing methods, not only in terms of your contribution to the but also in terms of how to evaluate where it's published, right? There's a lot of historians who aren't familiar even with nature or science or PNAS, for example, right? As, as, as you know, those publications being really high profile public publications. Um, and if you're working with scientists, you know, of course they want to publish in those places. Don't care so much about AHR, for example, that does nothing to them, right? So there's many, many different issues. And I think you're right that change has to come from the departmental level, but one department, it's hard for one department to do it in isolation. No, I absolutely agree. And I'm hopeful that those shifts are coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also in terms of forging connections, now that there's almost a second generation or a generation of graduate students who are brought up with this kind of incorporated as part of graduate training to, to some degree, that those partnerships are forged earlier. So there is more kind of infrastructure in place for collaborations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also a kind of lateral move from the sciences as well, where especially right now, scientists are starting to realize that there are questions that they're not really equipped to answer that are very important to something like epidemic response. And so I think having both of those things coming together is exciting. Start that. So how do you navigate the issue of um, working in equal teams with scientists, right? Because often a scientist will come up with a project and then invite a historian into the project. 
after the project has already kind of been imagined, sometimes even when the project is almost ready for publication, right? So then automatically it becomes an unequal partnership. Or a historian might be invited onto a project that has, you know, many other scientists, but you're the only historian involved. Sometimes you might be the most junior historian in the group. So how do you sort of navigate the politics of these? Um, is there kind of a best practice or does it just kind of differ from one group to the next? I think it, I think it tends to differ from one group to the next because the politics of group work are always tenuous and complicated and that's less true. And I don't know that I've figured out how to, how to navigate that quite yet. Uh, yeah, so let's turn then to favorite subject, the current global pandemic. Um, and so many scholars and journalists and activists have noted that the impacts of both disease and climate change fall heavily on marginalized or minority communities. Yeah, so in the U.S., Black and Hispanic and Indigenous folks have been disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change and have much higher mortality and morbidity rates from that we're seeing becoming even more uh, abundantly clear. And I'm wondering, uh, based on your research, do you structural structural inequality in the historical impacts of disease and environmental change? what I'm finding in my, which is that in each of the cities that I'm looking at, the broad scale land use change that comes with explosive urbanism is disproportionately uh, leading to effects in the kind of or the lowest socioeconomic status groups. And so that's true in Northern Ireland. It's true in uh, Bombay, and it's true. And uh, the kind of heart of my dissertation is looking at three different cities and their particular uh, ecological, economic, political, and social characteristics at the end of the 19th century when they all experienced explosive uh, urban growth um, that usually results from investment from the British mainland in an area and specialization around shipping. Uh, so you have a kind of flood of people that move into these areas and there's change in all the categories that I just suggested. And then you see an epidemic disease, but it's not the same ec- epidemic disease in each place, right? So if you're kind of looking at a broad framework of something like, you know, economic investment, uh, population boom, disease, the question is why are the diseases similar? Um, if we're seeing similar inputs, right? And so the, the kind of answer that I'm coming up with, right? So it's about what makes a city unique that leads to particular diseases being more or less. One of the really interesting aspects of this has been seeing the role of urban infrastructure and how it plays into each of urban infrastructure leading to select overcrowding and uh, kind of degraded living conditions. And these kind of amplify these three microbial um, marginalized infrastructures are different in each place. You see, I see those characteristics playing into mortality significantly, but also then occupational characteristics. So for example, if you scale to Bombay, which I think is maybe one of the most interesting cases for this, then you're not only seeing that it's lower caste people that are becoming ill with plague, um, which would make sense because they're kind of living in 
meaning more rats, meaning more uh, interaction with rats. But you're also seeing that there's um, differences in what jobs people have and, and how they get sick. And so, for example, um, as sh in the shipping industry, they're getting sick with the plague more frequently. Uh, if they're working in factory settings, they're getting sick with the plague more frequently. Um, and I think that we're seeing a similar confluence of racial and socioeconomic and infrastructural dynamics leading to um, an increased risk of COVID-19 and also increased risks of climate-related disaster. Um, that there are intersections of various overlapping risks that, to, um, of course, we've seen cases like this uh, for COVID, not only because uh, we're seeing people who work in factories getting sick, at higher rates, we're also seeing people who live in um, or who work in scale uh, globalized commercial industries getting sick. So that's kind of an interesting parallel as well. Is that something like Amazon? Uh, you know, working for Amazon is a huge risk when it comes to co warehouses, right? So Amazon warehouses had huge outbreaks of COVID nineteen, and we've seen a kind of decrease access and um, inappropriate brand chains. In the same way, if you look at Bombay in the 19th century, the shipping industry is just one cog in the massive wheel that is the British imperial shipping uh, and economic industries, right? And so you're seeing the kind of local dynamics and the global dynamics come together to create a little pocket of illness for people in a particular place. So can the past also tell us about solutions? So what can solve... Um, some of these structural inequalities. Um, uh, so does history tell us anything? Does it have kind of bigger lessons for how we can rectify this problem? I think so. Um, of course, it's not going to be a straightforward answer, which is the kind that people are hoping for. It's not going to be like, oh, I, you know, did some digging in a cave and I found this COVID-19 cure. Um, history is amazing. That's the problem with history, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I think it's going to be more something along the lines of, um, or at least the way that I've been viewing it in relation to my own research, history does tell us that there are certain epidemic responses that have failed. Um, and I think most of them are the forms of epidemic response in which you have a kind of baseline ideology for how you should manage an epidemic um, or a baseline ideology for how you're supposed to manage any sort of disaster. And then you just apply it across the board um, without alterations for local conditions. And so those often fail. They often all become very culturally deaf. Um, they can lead to violence. I think we've seen cases of this even recently when we look at the West African Ebola outbreak in 2014, that there are these kinds of ideas that come from a, kind, a very distilled, very programmatic. And this seems to stem from the period that I'm looking at, which is when we have this kind of consolidation of international science and medicine, in, especially in imperial circulation, the rise of germ theory, um, and you have these very uh, rigid ideas of how a disease is supposed to be managed. And it falls apart immediately. Uh, in the case of Bombay, it leads to riots, right? Because they're not paying attention, the epidemic response uh, personnel are not paying attention to, you know, local customs related to caste or related to women's rights. And so there's, um, so there's a very quick and immediate breakdown of, of relationship between epidemic response and the population. So response. 
So you need cultural competency in order to manage an epidemic, and I think to manage a disaster generally. Um, and it's through things like points of tension in epidemic response in the past that we can see that. I think another thing that's emerging out of my research is the understanding that public health fragmentation at the local level can be really detrimental to epidemic response. So if you have you know, a, neighbor, a city and the city is divided into wards and those wards don't meet under any sort of centralized health authority if they're not communicating, then there's a complete breakdown of epidemic response from neighborhood to neighborhood. So there needs to be kind of local adaptation, but also continuous communication between the parties. And so something like that is really important to know when managing an epidemic, but it's also not a very cut and dry solution to say, you actually just need more work on the communities that you're hoping to mitigate disease in. And so do you, do you think this awareness of local realities and particularities has been missing from the public health response? Yeah, um, I think it's been missing in the American context in particular because we're not really adjusting for the very many different ways that, live, that life as an American can work and the many different circumstances under which people can try to manage their um, economic and uh, health stability. And so not having mitigated or like responses that are adequate to mitigate, you know, respond to those different scenarios is, is very problematic. So I was working in Mumbai last year and I kept thinking about Darby slum in Mumbai with some concern in relation to COVID because a lot of the people who work there are involved in volatile chemical recycling. And so there's high incidence of COPD and lung cancer. People are living, it's one of the most densely populated spaces on earth. So it's a million people living on one square mile of land. And so when you put those risk factors together, I was thinking that, you know, once COVID-19 hit that space, there would be huge problem. It would just explode. Um, but that's not why. And it's because of the way that people who live there negotiate their health and negotiate public health. So there's an incredibly active, localized response to public health means that an individual person getting sick can mean uh, really dangerous things for hundreds of thousands of other people. And so they were actually able to coordinate uh, like large scale information dissemination, PPE dissemination and um, and kind of personal accountability through the community. And so now they have the lowest rate of, of COVID of anybody in the city, which is really fascinating. And it says a lot about how much kind of local response can influence the way that disease spreads. That, that is really fascinating. And it's something we see in climate work as well, of course, right? And often the most vulnerable communities are the ones that are most prepared to deal with environmental calamities when they happen. And therefore, sometimes the effects of, of climate change, climate shocks um, at the local level can be very counterintuitive. Yeah, absolutely. This concept of resilience as, uh, as being particularly strong among people who were... Uh, or, uh, yeah. On that note, it also got me thinking about... Um, there was this article... For environmental history, a few part of a forum on uh, environment and technology uh, by Andrew talked about 
It's called Plagues of Affluence, Human Ecology in the SARS Epidemic. And he talks about how the conditions of the affluent West are actually perfect for perpetuating SARS. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about how there's another, might be another kind of plague of affluence, um, not only structurally, but also ideologically. Um, the way that kind of affluent Western society is equipped with a certain kind of individualism. Um, that coronaviruses might be like particularly equipped to do damage to individualistic affluent societies, not only because of the kind of health structures in place, but because of the degradation of community bonds that we see in a lot of Western society. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about how a comparative article on SARS, MERS, and coronavirus could be really interesting in, in kind of revealing power networks and social networks as a critical risk factor for disease transmission. That would be phenomenal. And of course, it always links back into climate change, too, because we're talking about many of the same mechanisms that are driving the change in the climate, driving the change in disease patterns and disease geography as well. So is that a connection that, like, how explicit do you have a connection in your work uh, on the past? I know that you did a master's on Tambora. Um, so were you thinking about climate at the same time you started thinking about the human ramifications of disease or you know how, how connected are these two themes in your uh, doctoral work? I would say that they're very connected. Um, I don't know that I engage explicitly with climate um, at the risk of kind of stretching the diseases that I work on. I to say that certain diseases thrive better in certain climate, um, which we know to be true of, of certain illnesses, typhoid, cholera, malaria, yellow fever, all of these have kind of climate G. And I think that that's where my original thinking on my dissertation project emerged was definitely at the intersection of these two topics. Because I, in my first year, I was involved with an Anthropocene reading group where I was kind of exposed to most of the Anthropocene and climate change thinking, like major bodies of work in Anthropocene and climate change thinking. Uh, and then I started to incorporate that into thinking about disease um, and land use change. And I realized that where the connection really lies is in the often invisible networks of power and economic connection between, um, like kind of at the global level that are driving climate change, the kind of complex mix of, uh, you know, global capitalism patterns, consumption patterns, power dynamics, imperialism, um, and socioeconomic change at the global level. All of these things are connected to, you know, land use change and, and consumption patterns that are driving climate change. The same, at the same time, they're connected to these patterns of um, humans infringing on ecological spaces that they previously hadn't and creating more opportunities for contact between animals and humans. And so I see them all kind of connected under the same disparate but very, very connected power structures that are that are driving global change. It's all, you know, it's all Anthropocene, essentially. It's also important to think about the kind of cultural drivers of land use changes. For example, with the coronavirus, they're thinking um, one of the like major theories for the emergence of the coronavirus comes out of um, affluent, you know, the, the kind of affluent markets 
where exotic animals are sold in China. Um, these are, you know, spaces where rich people can come and conspicuously consume. And so there's a connection between kind of the global cultural patterns of, uh, of affluence and disease. And that's kind of another way to think about coronavirus as being a disease of affluence and zoonoses as being a disease of affluence is that corona, like zoonoses are increasing because of the increased tempo of environmental destruction. Um, the great acceleration is also an acceleration of zoonotic So you're also pursuing a master's degree in public health. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that experience, um, the experience of pursuing these two related degrees simultaneously, and if you have any advice for other graduate students or early career scholars who might be interested in a similar path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I came to it later than I should have. Um, I think I officially enrolled in my master's program last year. I'd been taking classes towards it, but uh, kept kind of getting sidetracked by the requirements of my PhD program. So I'm now finishing the master's degree in my final year of my PhD program while I finish my dissertation. Um, which is not necessarily a path I would recommend for other people. Um, so I think the advice that I would have, I would absolutely recommend getting a master's degree in another field if you are planning on working interdisciplinarily or if you want to engage with interdisciplinary topics. I think that learning how to speak the language of another field and learning the kinds of questions and the boundaries of the questions you can ask in another field are going to be very, very important for being able to pursue truly interdisciplinary. I originally kind of started it by taking an epidemiology class because I knew I wanted to work on disease and I knew that I wanted to apply quantitative methods, but I hadn't taken any epidemiology classes before. And I was lucky enough to take a class with the head of the public health department uh, at the University of Chicago, Diane Lauderdale, who's a phenomenal teacher uh, and very encouraging. And I kind of mentioned to her that I was thinking about doing this master's degree and she's been really, really supportive of, of my pursuing that degree. Um, talking to somebody up front is a really good idea about doing both because you might be able to work out certain ways to work on the master's degree and the PhD at the same time that complement each other. So for example, my master's thesis is going to be an extension of the questions that I'm asking Bombay, but using different data, um, probably more modern data from like the 1994 Surat uh, plague epidemic, uh, but answering similar questions and kind of structurally asking similar questions. Um, so it's kind of, it's a support and complement and enrichment to my dissertation. So having a supportive, finding, seeking out a supportive faculty member who is excited by what you're doing is important. Starting early is important. Um, and something that I didn't do, but in retrospect, I would have done is knowing that I wanted to work specifically on uh, zoonotic disease and climate change in history and in public health. I think I would have looked at the uh, public health program here more closely, here being at the University of Chicago, more closely to see if there was anybody who was working on that topic. Um, 
because it's a pretty sparse topic at UFC. Um, and it's something I just kind of, you know, I, I joined the public health program because I wanted the kind of underlying skills, but I'm also kind of lamenting the fact that I'm not coming out of it with the more concrete knowledge about zoonotic disease, public health studies. I'm having to kind of find that on my own. So in short, it would be, if you wanted to kind of do both things, I would look at programs where you can pursue the topic that interests you in both your PhD and in your master's degree. Um, Yeah. And then to find, to seek out faculty who are supportive and to plan, to plan your schedule accordingly. And also on the subject of being a graduate student. Yeah, global events have had this huge impact on graduate students across disciplines. Um, Research trips and archive use um, and many other things have been curtailed indefinitely, and I think you've had personal experience. Um, And I'm wondering what you wish more people, especially faculty or administrators, knew about the experience of graduate students right now. Yeah, that's a really important question. We actually just had a series of meetings uh, between faculty and students at the University of Chicago to address some of the major problems that we're seeing in this kind of coronavirus moment. Um, And one thing that faculty, I don't think, realized at all is how precarious the financial situation of their students was, especially their students who were grant holders. So if students were called home, uh, sometimes they just received an email that said their funding had been pulled and they had to get home and meet. And so while that looks like a reasonable approach from the level of the granting organization, what that means for the student is that they have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to fly home. In some cases, they have to pay for their own quarantine spaces, especially if they gave up their apartments while they were um, And then they also have to find a way to, uh, they have to find a source of income for the semesters or the rest of the semester or the rest of the quarters that they were gone because a lot of universities aren't retroactively granting the stipend back to students if they put it on debt. Their students have basically gone from a position of, you know, maybe a comfortable fellowship in another country to having no to come home. I was really fortunate in that I was actually in the last three weeks of my own research trip. So luckily the granting organization I was working with uh, or the two granting organizations I was working with just uh, were fine with me calling it done. Um, and I, I was mostly done with my research. Um, I think a lot, of faculty, a lot of faculty don't seem to realize the precarity of the positions that their students are in. Being, they're having the childcare duties foisted on them while they're also trying to complete their student. Uh, students are lobbying for, for an extension of one year and oftentimes not getting it. And so if they're in a financially precarious situation where, you know, one member of their household was working and now isn't, and they have to now pick up extra labor to support their household, that's going to go down their charity. Um, where a lot of students don't have, you know, savings accounts and they don't have, they're not in a position to, um, to be flexible with, uh, with their, their lifestyles. And that's becoming even more tight right now. Um, one thing we're doing at the University of Chicago that we just started that I'm really excited about is we've actually started a departmental mutual aid society where uh, kind of fronted by the graduate students. And so we call it broadly the economic working group. And there are two subsets. There's 
a non-cash mutual aid fund, which focusedly um, thinks that they can help them. The other side is a cash-based mutual aid fund where we've basically started a GoFundMe um, that faculty and students can voluntarily pay into. Um, and then students, we have a whole system whereby some of the students are um, like fronting uh, requests for money. Um, and we don't really have like a justification system. It's more just that we're trying to trust the students involved in the department to tell us what um, yeah, so I, and I'm a huge fan of, of both subsets of that. I know that there, it gets kind of complicated with, but the non-cash mutual aid fund is something that's not hard to set up and can have a huge impact. And so, um, I would really advise people to look into their own departments and see if, if there's room for that, or if there are people who are willing to take on that organizational role. I think that's phenomenal and really inspiring. Emily, but also on some level, struggling for, to find the right word, but kind of enraging that it's necessary, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, from my perspective anyway, because, I mean, it's got to be a priority of university administrators to protect, take care of people who need it most and are most precarious at a university, right? And who's more precarious than graduate students? Often very few people indeed. And it's just appalling. Uh, this has not been a priority for many university administrators. And then even going above them, it's appalling that there hasn't been a real bailout of universities in higher ed um, by the government. It's, it's all incredibly enraging. <laughs> and that actually kind of ties back into your research too, right? And, um, and some of the ways that structural inequities are magnified by, um, by the sometimes purposeful policies of those who are in control. Seems to me like what we're experiencing is some sort of wide-scale system failure uh, in the U.S. Um, and so, I think one of the things that excites me about um, what the graduate students at the University of Chicago are doing is that we're seeing, um, much like we're seeing, kind of local networks of resilience and care emerging in underserved communities to take care. Of. Starting to see graduate students have an identity as a group um, that is kind of underserved and underrepresented. Um, and we're starting to see them take care of each other, um, and faculty become involved in taking care of, of them too. That is encouraging, um, maybe like the only inspirational thing in, in what is otherwise, uh, yeah, system-wide failure, I think. Uh, what a time to be, okay. And I want to, uh, I want to ask you about environmental history now. Um, which is this incredibly inspiring, exciting initiative um, that you and a small team have developed over the last few years, last two years. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the resource, the website, why it's important, and how it's grown. Absolutely. Um, I am a huge, huge advocate for environmental history now. Um, I think the first, first thing to say is that the vast majority of the credit goes to Elizabeth Hamitman. Um, she developed the idea and she ran the platform alone um, and kind of grew it alone very quickly um, into this really amazingly interesting uh, place for women identifying and uh, non-binary and transgender scholars um, to kind of elevate their work and talk through the problems of graduate school and early career life 
uh, to talk about their research, to talk about topics in the environment that they're passionate about. And um, there are all these kind of subsets of, of this project that are happening right now. So one of the longest running one is this Problems of Place series that Elizabeth ran um, and ha is still running, um, which has been about scholars kind of talking about their position in um, and then also we started a politics of nature series this past November or maybe December that I'm heading. Um, where we kind of talk about, you know, various topics in, in the politics of nature. And now um, with the most recent events in, in American history, Elizabeth has been really forthcoming about developing, um, kind of extending the platform reach and trying to specialize more in uh, elevating the voices of scholars of color, particularly women in history. But now we're kind of setting out lists of various themes and topics that relate to environmental history and uh, elevating women of color. That's a good plug. Anybody who writes on, uh, on the environment and identifies with these groups, please, please, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, and it's, it's made me personally feel like I have a community of people to talk to who have shared interests with me. Because when I started at the University of Chicago, there were maybe four students, maybe, uh, who were studying environmental history. And none who studied environmental history really in the way that I did. And so now it just feels like I have a connected community of people to talk to and to inspire me when I'm kind of hitting a wall. Um, it's an incredibly exciting project. It also shows what's possible right on the online space, um, including for graduate students, that you, know, you can make these incredible contributions to your field by developing websites and, and working together. There are dozens and dozens of contributors now to the website. Um, you can find it at envhistnow.com that's e-n-v-h-i-s-t now.com and it's really some of the best environmental content on the internet so i strongly encourage anyone who listens to this podcast to visit the website it's fantastic we're always looking for people who are interested in uh becoming part of the editorial board as well so if you have, it's all volunteer based. So if you're interested, also feel free to reach out to one of us. Our contact info is on the website. I also just wanted to say that this is a really neat project and another sign of all the really interesting things that you can do in the online space. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what, what you come up with. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>